John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Each of the four gospel writers has a way of their own, a unique way of recounting the life and ministry of Jesus. Some of that uniqueness is related to the primary audience. Matthew, for example, has the kind of detail that a Jewish reader would want, while Luke's way is more fitting of non-Jews. Some of their uniqueness is in the highlighting of themes that fit their theological purposes. Mark writes as one who wants us to ask, who is this man? And his gospel is in a hurry to lead you to the correct conclusion. John slows down and uses a lot of imagery. He uses a lot of contrasts, light and dark, flesh and spirit, appearance and reality. As each gospel writer records and relates Jesus' life and ministry to us, they also, as we've talked about before, make decisions about what to include and what to leave out. On a historical timeline, coming into chapter 7, we're in the year 29 AD at this point. And all the writers let us know that Jesus ministers in Galilee for six months or three quarters of a year here. We see from verse 1 that this was in part out of a desire to avoid potential conflict in Judea. Now, this ministry in Galilee in the spring and the summer of 29 are detailed extensively in the other three Gospels, chapters on this six-month window. 
And John glosses over it in one verse. Keeping the focus on Jesus's conflicts and the theological teaching that explains the spiritual root of that conflict is John's way. It's his way of focusing our attention on who Christ is. Some unbelievers, many who haven't read the Gospels carefully at all, consider the fact that there are four different ways of telling Jesus' story as evidence that none of them are true. But the more we read them with the Spirit as our guide, the more we see that these differences of style and tone and content, the author's different ways don't obscure the truth. They make it all the more clear. Of course, as with all the gospel writers, John's purpose is not to draw attention to his way. But he does regularly draw attention to Christ's. He writes as he desires. He writes as he is led to write. But he constantly focuses our attention on Jesus' way and how different that is. His perspective is different from the world's on everything. They rarely agree on the what, and in the rare occasion they do, we see differences on the how and the why that are legion. If the goal of the Christian life is to be more like Christ, then understanding Jesus' way is paramount. Once God regenerates our hearts of stone, once God changes our wants, We see how much work there is to do in understanding and cultivating his way in our lives. That's really what the Christian life is about. Once we've become regenerated, our instincts, our habits, our way needs to align with his more and more. We don't simply want a lifetime of resisting the world and the flesh as if the best a Christian can do is to be defensive in posture, reacting to whatever happens. We want to see God put sin to death in us by the Spirit and train us to walk in new obedience to his holy way. While it can sometimes be easy to forget or to have never considered how different that way is from the world's, passages like this one help it to stand out in stark relief. The first example is with his own brothers, verses 2, 3, and 4. His brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, and like good brothers, they are annoyed with Jesus. They're annoyed that he's made claims about himself, and that these claims, if true, would warrant a publicity tour. That if Jesus is who he says he is or anything close to it, he shouldn't be wasting his time teaching and impressing these small audiences in Galilee. He should be in Jerusalem where all the action is. If he wants to be famous, he should do what it takes to be famous. But his way appears to intentionally avoid the crowds and the fame. This isn't the way they would do it at all. Now, the particular occasion for the conflict is the arrival of the Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles. This is an annual feast. It's kind of like Thanksgiving in that it combines celebration of the harvest, grapes and olives this time of year, with commemoration of the past, in their sense, God's redemption of Israel, leading them through the wilderness. 
And among the first century Israelites, this was the most popular of the annual feasts. It was most everybody's favorite. And so all the Jews would flock to Jerusalem to participate in this festival. And to accommodate all those people, the natives of Jerusalem would have to build all of these tents, all of these booths that lined the street that gave their visitors a place to stay during the week of the feast. So in his brother's analysis... This is it. This is the opportunity for Jesus to have one of the biggest audiences possible. What better way to be famous than to teach in the capital city during the key feast of the year while Judaism's most faithful adherents are present? This is it. This is the way. The way of the world, at least. As the great musical theologian Ben Folds said it, you've got to give the people what they want. But here stands Jesus, clearly with no plans to leave for the event anytime soon. And it drives his brothers mad. They are thoroughly unimpressed with his ministry strategy. They've probably heard about and perhaps seen the many disciples who walked away those outcomes of the past few months of ministry. The goal of the famous is to draw a crowd. Jesus' goal seems to be to run off the crowd. I truly wonder how to square this with the ways of modern church planning and evangelism, with that mantra that says you have to be liked before you can be heard. On the one hand, we should want to be likable. The fruit of the Spirit in our lives should be visible and appealing to others. Being well-received personally does cultivate good soil for planting seeds and helping growth. But what if being liked comes at the expense of obedience to what we're supposed to say and do? What if the price for being well-received is measured in disobedience to God's will? Jesus' brothers have had it with his anti-church growth strategy. His way is obviously not working. So Jesus needs to try their way. He needs to go to Jerusalem now. He needs to show the gathered crowds his miraculous power. Look at all this stuff I can do. And then along the way, he can teach the people some lessons, but lessons they can tolerate, and start the process of positive political change. I'll talk more about purpose and means later on. And here God's ways are certainly in stark contrast with the world's. But the first contrast of ways in this passage is one that's not just hard for the world. It's the hardest one for Christians. After regeneration, we can get on board with the idea that life should be devoted to the will of God. We know that until glorification, we have to battle for God's will by the Spirit. And taught by God, having our hearts changed, we can also come to accept, little by little, that what God does, his means, what God is doing, are ultimately for good. It's really hard to say sometimes. It's hard to believe sometimes. But we can get on board with that even in the darkest of times. The contrast highlighted in this first conflict is one that even mature Christians struggle with. God's timing. Now, his brothers cannot possibly see this. 
Verse 5 tells us that they didn't believe in him. They didn't have the eyes of faith. So what they see is that Jesus' means and his timings are terribly wrong. If he would just see things their way, he would know he has to go to Jerusalem and he has to go to Jerusalem now. It's the only way that will work. But even with the eyes of faith, it is sometimes very hard to see the goodness of God when it comes to timing. We understand intellectually that his timing is not our own, and we've learned that from experience as well. But why is this timing better? While even faith does not always see how his way is better, unbelief like that of his brothers cannot accept that it is true. Jesus knew the reason for which he was sent. He knew that he would eventually lay down his life for his people as he was raised up on the cross of Calvary. But he knew that this event, the Feast of Booths in AD 29, he knew that this event and every event flowing from it had to take place at the proper time. The time that accorded to God's way, not the world's way, and certainly not his brother's way. Jesus' time, he says, has not yet come. When your way is to live perfectly within the will of God, there is a definite moment assigned to every obedient act. God's will for humanity is not divided into the big things and the little things. And the big things get a proper time on God's timeline, but the little things can happen whenever. Now, one scholar writes, for every deed and action of the Lord, in complete accord with the eternal counsel of God, there is a definite moment. Every act of obedience to the Lord has a proper time. Sometimes we come to understand after the fact why the timing mattered. In this story, verses 14 and 15 reveal that because Jesus entered the temple later, it was impossible for the authorities to plot and carry out his arrest. His surprise appearance after people assumed he wasn't coming at all is what made it possible for him to minister more effectively and to avoid arrest in this setting. And likewise, sometimes in our lives, we'll get a glimpse into why God's timing was better than what we wanted. But there are so many times when we will never know. We arrive a few minutes early. We'll never know for what we were better prepared. We leave an hour late. We'll never know what potential tragedy was avoided. The hardest ones. A life is cut short. Far too soon. What invisible purposes could God be working out? Or a life that lingers beyond human calculations of usefulness? How is God making others more Christ-like through it? We may never see. While faith does not always see how his way is better, unbelief like that of his brothers insists that it cannot be true. That's why Jesus tells them in verse 6, your time is always here. When you're more concerned with your way than God's, your agenda rather than his, the when makes no difference at all. 
Jesus is loving his father, which draws the hate of the world. And in this particular instance, God's timing is designed to restrain that hate and keep it from interfering with his saving work. But the world cannot hate them because if your way is not God's way, it is the world's. If this is hard to hear, and it's hard for me to say, it may be because it hits close to home. Because what Jesus is saying here is that if you aren't obedient to his Father's will, there's not one single other detail that matters. There's no better and worse disobedience. There's just disobedience. Kids, you'll spend most of your childhood dealing with parents who want you to obey. We set up rewards for obedience and punishments for disobedience. If your house is like mine, you probably hear a lot of lectures about obedience too. It's like parents are obsessed with it. And if you're a teenager or as you become one, you'll hear more and more about the bad results that could come from disobedience, about the bad things that will happen if you go your own way. And frankly, when you're an adult, it won't be much different. You can get hurt or sick. You can lose a job. Your marriage and family can suffer because you did the wrong thing. And on the contrary, if you do the right thing, people can look at your life and see health and money and a very well put together family and think, oh, this is great. That's what makes what Jesus says here so challenging. As bad as those consequences are for wrong behavior, or as good as those results are for good behavior, Jesus says that if it doesn't start with obedience to God, it makes no difference. None of it matters. You can follow all the rules of life on the outside and get all the benefits of an orderly life. And if you aren't following God's way, it means nothing. And what should motivate us to avoid bad consequences then is not First, those consequences, they can be helpful, but what Jesus is telling us to be motivated by is the desire to follow God's way. In the long run, obedience to parents doesn't matter if it doesn't begin with obedience to God. Making decisions that the world thinks are good and that may provide good outcomes, if it's not rooted in living for God, it makes no real difference. If you aren't being obedient to the Father, Not one other detail matters. There's no better and worse disobedience. There's just disobedience. It's God's way or it's the world's. And by world in verse 7, Jesus means the way of unbelief. The religious rulers represent that most clearly in these passages, but his brothers are a part of it as well. The the crowds, these self-righteous crowds, they consider themselves faithful on account of the fact that they showed up to a religious feast. They're no better. There may be good in that, but without obedience to God's way, none of it matters. John implies a play on words here as Jesus responds to his brothers because what they want is for him to show himself to the world, to seize the opportunity for fame. But Jesus has told us several times now that you can show the world all the miracles you want and they don't believe in the Son of God. 
The world that his brothers want him to impress is precisely the world that cannot receive him apart from the gift of God. The world, crowds in Jerusalem, false disciples in Galilee, even his brothers here at home, the world doesn't believe in him. They cannot see. And so when he testifies that their works are evil, they hate him. This level of truth-telling, which is an important part of God's way to call good, good, and to call evil, evil, this is never welcomed by the world. The world loves to rename things. Sin is a mistake, a lapse in judgment. It's not who I am. Selfish rebellion becomes finding yourself or protecting yourself. And the truth becomes, of course, my truth. This is the world's way. But it isn't Jesus, so he tells his brothers they can go to the feast without him. (laughs) It simply doesn't matter when they go. Operating outside of the way and the will of God, it makes no difference. Disobedience is disobedience. Go whenever you want. Later, in the proper time, of course, Jesus does go up to the feast, verses 10 through 13. He makes an appearance to the crowds that had been looking for him and even talking about him in his absence. While some in the crowd are the Lord's public opponents, these religious rulers we've been reading about, John also clues us in to the presence of a silent, albeit confused, majority. That some think he's good and powerful and of God, and others think that he's a fraud. He's leading people astray. But John's emphasis about this crowd is not what they believe, but on what they will say. That this crowd will not say any of it publicly because they're afraid of the religious rulers. These go-along-to-get-along cowards have strong opinions about Jesus in private. But as long as the Sanhedrin haven't yet told them which position is the socially acceptable one, they're not going to stick out their necks for anything. While prudence and being slow to speak are important components of God's way, cowardice in the interest of self-preservation belongs entirely to the world's way. And it is rampant in the church then and today. So we'll say of the religious rulers, at least they were willing to challenge Jesus directly. In these confrontations, we see even more contrast between Jesus' way and the world's. The first, verses 14 to 18, the first is over authority. Jesus sits down in the temple, that's the posture of teaching in those days, and he begins to speak. And a crowd gathers to hear, and that crowd includes some of these people who've been quite hostile to Jesus. In situations like this one, the other gospels report that people were astonished in the way that Jesus taught. And that's because in Jewish tradition, Teachers rely heavily on precedent and past scholarship. So when you taught, if you want to teach with authority, if you want people to believe what you're saying, you would quote someone else, this patriarch or that one, this rabbi or the other. You derived your authority by being knowledgeable about those who have taught before. That's why you needed to study so much and why learning was so important in this cultural context. So what astonished the crowds about Jesus' teaching was not what first what he said. 
It was that he didn't quote anyone except the scriptures. And then when he would explain the meaning of the scriptures, he didn't start with, as Rabbi such and such tells us, he started with, I tell you the truth. Truly, I say unto you. That's astonishing. So here, John narrows down the source of that astonishment to the fact that Jesus could teach the meaning of Scripture without the benefit of a formal rabbinical education. As always, the religious rulers imagine only two options. Either Jesus has authority from his own training or he has authority from his own opinion. But they don't have the imagination of faith to believe that there's a third way. Jesus says there is a third way, that his teaching, in fact, is derived from another source, the one who sent him. That's the basis of his authority. That's why he can say it with such confidence. That's why he can explain the words so well. They are his words. He and the Father are one. He, in fact, is the word. He's talking about himself. And they would see this if not for another contrast, godliness. That's verses 19 to 24. Jesus says, they have the law of Moses. They're very proud of this. They love to brag about sitting in the seat of Moses. They love to receive that glory and acclaim from others. They don't keep it. They just don't keep it. Jesus goes back to a previous interaction with them the way they objected to his healing the man on the Sabbath. They have the law of Moses. And he shows here through his example of circumcision that they also have the necessary principles for how to apply the law of Moses. The fourth commandment is very real. So is the commandment to circumcise for them. And when those two commands were superficially in conflict, they rightly understood the principle of what to do. Because circumcision is about ceremonial purification, to do so on the Sabbath did not violate the fourth commandment. And so they circumcised on the eighth day, even when that was the Sabbath. And Jesus says that in that lesson, the truth, the law of Moses, and the application, the principle for how to use it, they had both, and they should have had everything they needed to understand Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. What they did purified symbolically one part of, of his body. What Jesus did purified the entire person, body and soul. And as such, it was entirely in keeping with the Sabbath command. But remember what the religious rulers said on account of that healing? That healing is what cemented their desire to put Jesus to death. And what they claimed was their zeal for the fourth commandment. They blatantly violated the sixth. Another teacher does a great job of summarizing the important takeaways from these verses in three well-known terms. Knowledge, love, and obedience. He writes, knowledge as such never produces love. Knowledge results in love when the Holy Spirit applies knowledge to the heart, and that love and knowledge in turn are expressed 
in obedience. Listen carefully to this. When we speak in the Christian life, when we speak of knowledge, love, and obedience, we are not thinking of three altogether different experiences. We're thinking of one single comprehensive experience in which the three are united in such a way that each contributes and they all cooperate, transforming our entire personality for the glory of God. The religious rulers thought they had knowledge, but it was knowledge in a way that it was not knowledge in a way that God has or gives Because God's knowledge is always grounded in love and obedience of which they had neither. Because God's glory was not their goal, not their guiding star, they could not find the way to get there. If you're going to do God's will, if you're going to live with knowledge, love, and obedience, you must be committed to God's glory, not your own. And that's what Jesus points out to them here, that only from the perspective of God's glory is God's way ever illuminated to you. And what's worse is that without it, when the focus is our glory rather than God's, and yet we still pursue knowledge, we become critics. We we become presumptive connoisseurs of ways we stand in judgment over them, convinced that our own analysis can determine what's best. This is what the religious rulers were doing. It's why they couldn't see God's way. It's what the crowd was doing. It's why they took offense when Jesus suggested that the sixth commandment was broken. They accused him of being demon-possessed because to them, that's more likely than that these religious rulers are blind to the way of God. Look at how much knowledge they have. That gives us plenty to think about. That's why Jesus concludes by prompting the listener to think. Don't make rash judgments. Don't judge by superficial criteria the way the rulers did when Jesus healed on the Sabbath or the way the crowd did when Jesus said that they wanted to kill him. No, judge rightly. This is a call to slow down and to reflect. Is the glory of God the chief object of my life? Because Jesus says only from that vantage point Can we see what is God's way forward rather than our own? It's rare I close with someone else's words, but I want to here because when I tried to rewrite this in my own words, I added a thousand words and I could just read his paragraph instead because it's quite good. This was a helpful challenge to my own thinking this week, a real encouragement uh, in light of that verse to consider my own ways. A seeker must be fundamentally committed to doing God's will. This is a faith commitment. God will then fill the seeker's horizon. God's will is not simply to be thought about and assessed as if God is an object that we may politely examine, dissect, and discuss, picking and choosing what we like and accept of him. The faith commitment envisioned here is a moral choice, it's properly basic, and it renders impossible 
the human way of setting ourselves up as the judges of God's way. We often jokingly say that it's my way or the highway. But Jesus here issues a real challenge. Is that how we're living? Are we fixed on the glory of God and therefore seeing his way? Or is it my way or the highway? 